This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Okay, so the text this morning is John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. You can find that on your, in your Bible if you're using a pew Bible on page 901. John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Let me pray for our uh, time in the word, and then we'll jump in. God, we honor you for your word. We thank you in the name of Jesus that we have access to you. We thank you that you have welcomed us into your presence and that we are your children. God, I ask this morning as we hear this word, as we receive this word, as we apply this word, as we grapple with this word, I ask that you would give us a spirit of revelation that she would open our eyes to see you, God. I I ask for more than just conceptual understanding. I ask that we would have a paradigm-shifting encounter with your word this morning. Would you reorient how we see difficulty and hardship and the places where we are pruned back. I I actually ask that you would give us a vision this morning of a happy, joyful, zealous vine dresser who is committed to his glory and our good. I ask that our hearts would be re-knit and reformed by a picture of a God who will stop at nothing to have wholehearted love from us. And that we would delight in that. That that would be good food for our souls. God, would you do that by your Holy Spirit? Would you rest upon our hearts? Would you enlighten our eyes? Would you open our ears? Would you grant us grace, we ask this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And so just to situate us yet again, we've been walking our way through John 14 to 16. This is the sermon that Jesus gives the night before his crucifixion. And the, the theme of these chapters you could summarize as what Jesus begins with in John 14, verse 1. He, he comes to his disciples, and as they're about to face this remarkably difficult uh, season in front of them, he gives them this exhortation, this command, don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not let trouble dominate or overwhelm or overcome your hearts. Rather, believe in God and believe in me. 
and he exhorts them in this place and, and demonstrates that he longs to give peace that will guard and keep their hearts and minds, even in the midst of difficulty and hardship and pain and loss and sorrow. The means that Jesus gives them for engaging their troubled hearts through this season, he declares is faith, belief in him, belief in God. And he demonstrates this by then laying out these unbelievably beautiful truths that we're looking at. And and the reason we're spending time here is in a, a season of life both in our cultural moment, both in our societal moment, and then we find ourselves as a particular church family walking through seasons where there's so many pressures pressing in upon our hearts, tempting us to let our hearts become overwhelmed and uh, overcome by sorrow and despair and grief and bitterness and anger that we want to become familiar with these truths that they can find their way into our conversation with God, that we would activate faith in his word by his grace so that we would experience his peace. That's the desire here. So this morning, we're going to look at really just one truth, though I want us to get there maybe in two ways. The first thing that I want us to see again is that Jesus is the source of all things. Jesus is the source. What we're going to see here is that Jesus alone is the source by which we experience life and joy or fruitfulness or uh, transformation or salvation. Jesus declares that he alone is the vine. He's the true vine, the source of life. And then what we'll spend the majority of our time looking at is Jesus gives this picture of his father as a vine dresser who goes through the, uh, the orchard, so to speak, and he lovingly cares for his branches by pruning them, committed to fruitfulness in and through them. So that's our desire this morning. If you're following along with the notes, look at Roman numeral two here. John 15 is one of the high points in all of scripture talking about our relationship with Jesus or our, the believer's union with Christ. He demonstrates or he begins this by declaring that he is the true vine and his people are the branches. The call of this passage we've seen, uh, if, you, if you were with us last week, the, the whole of this passage goes from 15, uh, 1 to 11, and the call is to abide in Christ, to stay in union with him in order to experience the power of fruitfulness that comes from our union with him. Bearing fruit here is not seen as the call that is given to you. I want to I make that clear to us. Jesus does not command his followers to bear fruit, which would be counter to often how I think we would perceive of the, the call of the Christian life or what we think the point is. We would often imagine that Jesus comes to his disciples and says, hey, go and bear fruit, right? That's, that sounds maybe right, but Jesus does not command his disciples to bear fruit. The exhortation is, stay in me, stay in me, stay in me, 
stay in me, and then you will bear fruit. But there is this reality that we have to ask the question, what is fruit? Right? When he says, there will be fruit. Those who are in me will have fruit. The ones that have fruit, the Father will prune them back so there can be more fruit. There will be fruit that remains. This kind of fruit lasts and it stays and it, and it has a significance that endures, he says later in chapter 15. So we have to ask the question, what is fruit, right? Now, I think we'd be tempted quickly to believe, particularly in our Western sense of what is success or what is valuable or what is meaningful, I think we'd be quick to believe that fruit is scope and significance or numerical impact or size of impact. But I don't think there's a biblical warrant for that anywhere. Anywhere. Um, So I want to look at what do we think fruit is, as Jesus is talking about this, bearing fruit speaks first and foremost, I think, of internal realities. Our love for God, our virtue, our character, that which is transformed in us. We see Paul pick up this image, this analogy in Galatians chapter 5, when he speaks of the fruits of the Spirit being born in the lives of believers Not a single one of them has to do with outward expressions of impact or size or scope of your influence. They all have to do with internal realities that have been formed and transformed in you by the Spirit of God. So the first thing that we see that is fruitful, fruit speaks of internal realities. But it also does speak of external ministry and service, but not in the way that we like to think of it. Fruitfulness in the Bible is not about size or scope, but is about the cultivation of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives and inspiring others toward the same. External fruitfulness in the kingdom has nothing to do with how many. I I want to make that very clear because most people in in, in this world, their impact will only ever be in ones and twos, threes and fives, maybe tens and fifteens. It will not be standing on big platforms, uh, seeing lots of significance and influence and uh, this, this grand growth of momentum and things like that. We don't see that in the Bible. What we see in the Bible is all about the quality of fruit. So it's internal realities produced in us by the Spirit, and the external fruit of our ministry has to do with those same qualities being formed and inspired in the hearts of others. It's all about faithfulness where you are, not about size and scope and significance. That really matters for us, because if we believe that this, like, maybe Western idea of importance or success means that things are always getting bigger and better and more um, significance and more influence and more uh, success related to it. What we will experience in seasons of pruning is a temptation towards bitterness, offense, 
And then we'll start to have some false hope that this season, if I can just endure it long enough, there will be that kind of significance down the road. And it may never happen. There's no promise of it. But what God says is the fruit that is formed inside of you and the potency of the fruit in the places where you are faithful, even in the small, seemingly insignificant places of your life, that's what God cares about. That's what he cares about. Another way you could speak of fruitfulness is to talk about what is truly great or truly successful in the life of the believer in God's eyes. We all long for this. I want to tell you something about yourself that you may not know. You want to be great. Am I right? You want to be great. You want the things that you do in your life to matter. You want significance. You want things that matter. You want to put your hand to something and it have worth and value and dignity. God put that in you and you cannot get away from it. You can't repent it away. You can't run away from it. You can't like uh, beat yourself into some kind of submission, humble submission that that's not there. What you are called to do is reorient that from the ways that the world and the spirit of the age and the, the, our own flesh exalts how we find greatness. That's sinful. And reorient it to what God calls great and significant and worth something. That's what we have in our souls. We all long for this. However, the way we evaluate greatness and success is often misguided and shaped by prevailing ideas of the world or our culture. I want to do something that I didn't put in here. This just came in my heart and mind this morning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's on page 953, if you're following in the Pew Bible. Paul navigates this here, and, and I, I want to press down for us this desire for things that matter, things that remain, things that last. I think that we each have hardwired in us a true desire that what we put our hands to, what we give our lives away to, what we uh, uh, spend our time doing would last and have some significance. We just have to figure out what it is in God's heart that he calls great and significant. Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. He's speaking about building on the foundation that is Jesus. He says, so everybody's given this foundation that is Jesus Christ. You can't, you can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't uh, improve upon the foundation. The foundation is given to you. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, he's saying there's different materials that you can go out and get to build upon that foundation. You've been given this foundation by a free gift of God's grace to you, and your life, the choices that you make, the things that you give yourself to, they're building on that foundation with gold, silver, precious metals, wood, hay, or straw. 
Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest or shown. The quality of it is going to be tested for the day. I like how the ESV capitalizes that. Makes me very happy. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So what Paul's saying here is each one of us has a particular date with the man Jesus Christ and his evaluation of what we have done in our lives will be shown on that day. Now, this is not talking about the great white throne judgment where God um, brings some into eternal glory and then some to eternal punishment. This is a, an evaluation of life by Jesus Christ. This is written to believers. Okay, this is important for us. This is written to believers, and he says, there's a day when you will stand before Jesus Christ. The fire of his love will test the quality of what you have built with. If the work, verse 14, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is a sober thing. We don't talk about it very often. But there are fruits that remain. There are building materials that we can utilize in the grace of God that will stand. And there are pursuits that we can give ourselves to and uh, aims in our life that we can run after that when we stand in the presence of God and they are tested, they will not stand. They will not stand. So Jesus, we have to ask the question then, what does Jesus define as great? Right? What does he define as that which has eternal significance? Because I want to give as much of my energy towards running after that in my life, empowered by his grace and inspiring as many people as I can to do the same. Jesus defines greatness as loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Eternal significance has little to do with our ex external or outward successes. Is rather it is the quality of our internal life and our desire to impart that quality into the lives of others. Look at Matthew 22 here. Jesus is being questioned by the teachers of his day. Hey, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing? What matters the most to God? And Jesus, God in the flesh, answers this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Do you want to know what God defines as great? Go no farther. Loving him. This is all about internal quality of your heart. That is fruit. 
That is the fruit that remains. Again, John 15, we're back back here. We don't see Jesus command you to bear fruit. How do we do this? He commands you to abide in him, to stay in him, to remain in him, to keep yourself united with him. I'm going to read through verses four to seven in John 15. We see this over and over and over again. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, he goes on, abide in me, abide in me. Let me abide in you. Let's remain in intimate connection together through faith. Do this, then I will take care of the fruit. I will take care of the fruit. Abiding in Christ, we saw last week, Ricky did a phenomenal job of laying this out. It looks, it it has to do with remaining in consistent relationship with him through actively pursuing, trusting obedience to his word. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his. Okay, so let's look at what else Jesus says here. So Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I am the source. I am the way. I am the life. This is so similar to what he said earlier. He's orienting himself yet again as the exclusive and particular access point to all of the promises of God, all of the life of God, all of the saving power of God, all of that. He says, it's only in me. And if you are joined to me, stay in me and I will be in you and you will bear much fruit. That's a beautiful, glorious promise. But he goes on and he says, there's another actor in the story. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You cannot bear fruit unless you're in me. But let me tell you something about the way that you will experience life in this world. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross and they are about to walk through remarkable difficulty, trial, hardship, uh, both in his crucifixion and then in the seasons where he ascends to heaven and departs from them. And he's shaping their minds of how to make sense of the world so that they are not offended or scandalized by how things happen. That's what's happening here. So he gives us this other picture. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You cannot be fruitful unless you're in me. Now, my father is like a vine dresser. My father is like a vintner who goes through his vineyard and prunes away fruitful branches so that they will bear more fruit. He comes through with his shears of pruning and he will take away things so that more fruit will come in you. There will be more fruit that happens. This passage shows us that the father is a vine dresser. He's pictured here as a zealous worker who oversees the health and the fruitfulness of his vineyard. This passage teaches us that God is more committed to our fruitfulness than we ever could be. 
God is more committed to your fruitfulness than you could ever imagine or dream or drum up strength in yourself to be. You could not be zealous enough for loving God, seeing virtue and character formed in you, seeing real qualitative fruit in the lives of others. You couldn't even come to a fraction of the zeal that he has for that in your life. The Father himself is zealous for good works from you. He is zealous for fruit in you. You want to know what he is committed to? He is committed to your love for him. He is committed to producing character and trust and dependence and love and desperation in you and in me. He is way more committed to that than we ever could be. Where we are faulty and weak and come up short, the Father who oversees his vineyard with joy and gratitude and love and all affection, he is committed to it. And he won't stop until he gets what he wants. This truth is meant to stabilize us. This truth is meant to keep our hearts in the midst of seasons of significant difficulty. It helps us reorient our pursuits. It helps us reorient our commitments, our ways of evaluating and seeing what matters. To picture God as zealously and actively working for the sake of fruitfulness in our lives reshapes how we understand these seasons, both in pruning and in discipline. Later in this passage, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus demonstrates that the magnitude of God's love is oriented towards his followers. Look at John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me. How much does the Father love the Son? How much does the Father, who has eternally existed in perfection, love his only begotten son who has eternally existed in his bosom, John 1 says. Full of love, full of affection. How much does the father love the son? Can you answer that question? Jesus then says, that's how I love you. That's how I love you. So when we think about the vineyard or the the vineyard worker, the overseer of the vineyard, coming through with his pruning shears, if you have any vision of him other than as the father loves me, so I love you, we will misunderstand seasons of hardship, seasons of difficulty, seasons of pruning, seasons of testing, seasons of discipline. We have a beautiful picture of a father who is zealous to produce fruit in his vineyard. And he does it with love and joy and delight. Not with anger, not with frustration, not with hatred. For those who are in Jesus, the way he views us is affection, love, joy.
this scripture invites us to see that one of the tools that God has in his hands as he goes about his work is to prune fruitful vines. A vine dresser is committed to the greatest possible fruit in the life of the vine and will use what, we've, what we would view as like painful and very severe methods to produce fruit. It's funny, we had, um, we had some of the Midtown staff over last night just to be together and to pray. And uh, as we were praying and then right after our prayer time, nobody knew what I was talking about this morning. We had this long discussion on cutting back flowers and pruning trees and all this kind of stuff. And everybody's using their, their examples of, man, we had these flowers that weren't healthy and they kept coming back. And we just realized we weren't cutting them far enough back. So we just mowed them down and they came back really healthy. And it's like, okay. And then another person was like, yeah, I was, I was talking to these people who had this pear tree and they forgot to prune it. And so this year they have to go through and throw away 50 to 70% of the fruit, just take it off and throw it on the ground because they didn't prune it. And though it appears to be abundantly fruitful, the fruit uh, is, the, the life is so disparate in it that it's not edible. The vine dresser is committed to the fruitfulness of the vine, no matter what it takes, no matter what it takes. God's great vision for your life is that you would be zealous in love for him. And this is what he is actively working to produce. This is what he is actively working to produce. We have to believe this in order to we can be more dependent on him, more um, leaned into what he is doing so we don't misunderstand what he's trying to accomplish. Let me just talk about two types of pruning that happen. Um, I've got a lot more on the notes that I'm not going to get to, but I'm going to talk about two types of pruning. And then the last page I have like four ways of understanding seasons of difficulty. Not every difficulty is God's discipline or pruning. Um, that's, that's important to say, but there are seasons where God prunes, where he pulls back, where he takes away in order that there would be more fruitfulness. The first thing, I'm at the top of page three here. The first thing that we can see in seasons of pruning, one of the ways that we can understand them is they're seasons meant to remove distraction. They're meant to remove distraction. Seasons of increase or seasons of blessing, right? We see here that God comes and prunes fruitful vines, right? So he's, he's saying there's been fruit in this vine, now, one of the things that happens in the cycle of life is seasons of fruitfulness or seasons of increase or seasons of, of um, perceived growth or things like that, they often lead to a diminishing of our focus on the things that matter, right? They come with increased responsibilities, increased expectations, increased demands, all these kind of things. And the Lord at times will take something that seems successful, seems 
like it's moving up into the right and he will peel it back because the energy is getting dissipated into all of these distracting things. Have you ever felt that in your life? A season where the Lord pulled back or constrained you because your activities were becoming like a, like a stream that had overflown its banks. And it just became kind of stagnant. And there was, life was kind of dis, dissipated everywhere. The Lord at those times will sometimes pull us in and cut things off from our lives in order to remove distractions and help us re-engage simplicity. Look at Luke chapter 10. We see this isn't a season of pruning, but I like to think of this as sometimes when God prunes, which he, what he's trying to do is take away the things that make us anxious and busy about all these things to get us to sit at his feet and hear his word. This is uh, Mary. As, as Jesus enters into a village, he comes into Martha's house Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about so many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. And what Jesus does in some seasons is he'll take away distractions that get us anxious and troubled with many things in order to help us refocus our lives on things, on the things that matter, right? The good portion, sitting at his feet, communing with him, abiding in his word. In a practical way, seasons of pruning might look like removing activities that had increased, demands, expectations, responsibilities that come from a season of increased fruitfulness. Although it's, not, it's often experienced as a loss, we can see this as the hand of God in pruning back such activities to make more room for what is essential. We see this, Jesus says this kind of thing to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. They had had a season of profound fruitfulness early in their church, revival, God breaking open uh, doors in the city with people coming to know him. And 30 years later, they're still running at that clip. But God goes, something's, something's off. Jesus says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you can't bear with those who are evil. You've tested those that call themselves apostles that are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You haven't grown weary. That sounds amazing, right? But I have something against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. It's like you're still doing all the activities and they're right and they're good, but you've forgotten the love that you had at first, the simplicity of devotion to me. Repent for it. Come back. Do the things you did at first. Come back to your first love. So there are seasons of pruning that are meant to remove things from our lives that distract us and dissipate our energies for us to 
orient ourselves and focus ourselves in, in, the, in the truth of God and in his word. The second application of this is seasons of pruning to remove sin. There's seasons where Jesus will come or the father will come and prune away things in our lives because we're compromised. We're, we're compromised in sin and discipline is what we need in order to turn back to him and repent and see greater fruits of love and obedience and devotion produced in our lives. God disciplines his children as a loving father so that his holiness might be produced in us. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse five to 11. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Again, all through the New Testament, anytime they talk about the pruning knife of God, they want you to be sure that it's done in love. Hey, remember the exhortation that came to you as sons. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in what which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's a scary thought. It's a scary thought. I love, I love counseling people who come in seasons where God is putting his finger on sin in their life and they're, they're worried that their awareness of this sin that, that they've maybe uh, not seen before or didn't see the extent to which it went, they're worried that this somehow uh, distorts their relationship with God. And I go, hey, isn't it an amazing, amazing reality that he's putting his finger on it? If he wasn't, it would be evidence that you were not his. You actually have a really beautiful security in seasons where he's marking your heart and saying, hey, I want that. I want that. I want that gone from your life. Don't, don't run away from that. Repent of that. Ask me for grace for that. We actually get to rejoice that he's treating us like sons. If he wasn't doing it, we should be terrified. We should be terrified if we do not experience that. that is, that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at there. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. I always laugh at that one. When I think about my children, it's like, hey, I'm just trying my best here. Um, I'm just trying my best <laughs> Why do I care about that? I don't know. I'm trying my best. But he disciplines us for our good so that, why? We might share his holiness. We might partake of his holiness. We might be conformed into his image. We might bear more of his fragrance. We might look more like him, act more like him, think more like him, feel more like him. He says, this is why he disciplines us. 
For a moment, all of this seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Look with me, the last Roman numeral here. I have this here for you. This is, this is mostly just for your uh, future study if you desire. Um, I do, I do want to say it is important to know that not every difficult thing we face in this world is, is discipline. Um, so so there's, there's different categories of what we face in this world. Um, the Father's zeal for us is a big one. The Father's zeal for us to be conformed into his image is a big one. We also see there is real spiritual warfare that happens. We don't submit to that. We resist it. We resist it by standing in the word and standing in the truth of who Jesus is. We don't, we don't thank God for it. We don't like receive it. We, we actually resist it. Those places where the enemy comes in to steal, kill, devour, to get us to uh, succumb to uh, uh, wrong ways of thinking or wrong ways of feeling in the world. We resist that by the word. Um, we, we experience difficulty because of, of sin, like the consequences of sin. Uh, the, the way that I'll, I'll say it is this. The minute we repent for a sin, we stand clean before God. It doesn't necessarily negate the consequences of it in our lives, right? If you go tonight and you uh, blow all of your money and rack up debt gambling, tomorrow morning, you can run headlong into the grace of God and be fully righteous, fully forgiven, stand there with no condemnation and no shame. Doesn't mean you're like out of debt, right? That's difficulty. That's not God's discipline. That's consequence, right? There, that happens too. There's also creation is just broken. Creation is broken. Creation is broken. We're, we're sick in our bodies. Death happens. Like we, we, we long for and, and lament the brokenness of the world and long for the day when God will set it right. Those things aren't the discipline of God. So, so we need to know that. So as we walk through seasons with other people, we're not going like God's disciplining you for something like as they're grieving, losing a loved one or something like that. We can mourn the brokenness of creation, lament that things are not the way that they should be, grieve and ask Jesus to hasten the day when he'll come and make all things new. So what do we do with seasons where God is disciplining us? Where seasons where God is disciplining us? Look here under letter B. I just have a, a few things and then we'll close. We respond to his zealous work by submitting to his leadership. We submit ourselves to him. We say, your ways are good. I've been thinking about Psalm 119. Uh, there's, a, there's a section in there where the psalmist talks about, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, and then, and then he says the next thing, he says, you are good and you do good. And he's talking about affliction. He says, you are good and you do good things. So I submit myself to you. We submit ourselves to his leadership. In seasons of pruning and discipline and testing, 
I think one of the most beautiful things we can do is ask to see his heart. Ask for his heart for you. Thank him that he's a vine dresser that is committed to the good of the vine and his glory and ask him to show the love that he has for you as he is going about his work. Even in the midst of loss or decrease or hardship. In areas where we, he, we find that he is removing distractions, we submit by returning to our first love and reorienting our lives to pursue communion with him in simplicity. And then in areas of discipline designed to remove sin, we submit to him by repenting, by turning to him to receive his mercy and actively seeking to walk in obedience, actively asking him for grace to walk in obedience. Look down at the bottom of the page. This is, this is the prayer that I, I pray all the time as walking through this. We can actually pray this in any of these seasons. Um, and this is where I want to end. In each of these seasons, we can respond by asking the Lord to direct our hearts into his love and into the steadfastness, which means the patient endurance of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer as he closes the letter, the second letter to Thessalonians. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, into the steadfastness of Christ Jesus. Amen. Hey, would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll come to the table together. God, our Father, we just honor your presence even in this moment. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move among us. Holy Spirit, would you move among us? Holy Spirit, we belong to you. We ask for your grace in this moment. Would you come and all over this room, in, in the places where we find ourselves, would you, even in this moment, direct our hearts into the love of God? Would you, would you take our hearts by the Spirit and put them into the love of God? The experience of the love of God. The reality of the love of God. Like Romans 5, when Paul says that the love of God is poured into our hearts. Would you take our hearts and establish them, root them, ground them in your love? And would you direct our hearts into the patient endurance of Jesus Christ? The one who was tested in all things without sin and for the joy that was set before him endured. We are joined to him. That's what we see in the scripture. We are joined to him. We belong to him and he is in us. So spirit of God, would you express the endurance of Jesus? Not that we would grit our teeth and pull our bootstraps up, but that we would be animated by your grace, your life, your spirit within us to endure in the midst of this world.
God, we submit to your leadership. We say that you are good and you do good. Would you this morning, I ask in a particular way, would you show your face to us? The face of the vine dresser who comes and utilizes every means necessary to produce fruit in us? Would we see the joy of our Father, the love of our Father, the gentleness of our Father, the care of our Father? God, would we delight in that this morning? Would we be shaped by that this morning? Would we be grounded in that this morning? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the very night we hear these words that we're walking through, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it after giving thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he passed it. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. So this morning, if your hope is in Christ, if he is your only source, your only life, your only way, you're a Christian. If you look to him and to him alone, we invite you to come and take this meal. This meal is open for any and all who call upon the name of Jesus, who put their faith in him. We want to invite you to come and take. The way we take it, Redeemer, is you tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. You can see where the servers are. Uh, And we have a gluten-free to my right, to your left. If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, if you are not joined to him by faith this morning, don't come and take this meal. This meal doesn't uh, afford you anything in the presence of God. Um, This is a meal that signifies the reality of being joined to the vine. And so we're glad you're here. We have prayers on cards and the chairs uh, in front of you uh, that would help you know what it would be like to pray to God this morning if you need that. But stay in your seat. For those who are coming, come and receive now. And as always, every single week, we have people in the room, uh, prayer ministers that would love to pray with and for you. If there's places in your soul where you're going, I wanna see the face of my father, the joyful vine dresser who comes and prunes for my good. You want to experience the love of God. You want to know his steadfast um, grace towards you. Please let someone pray with and for you. Um, let, Let one of your brothers and sisters ask the spirit of God to work in your heart in a greater way and to make his, his life known to you. Um, so we'll respond in those ways now and through song. Amen.